Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. everybody, welcome to Writers on Film. This is a special episode to look at Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And we're going to talk a little bit about Dunkirk and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the comic book movies that have come out in the past uh, uh, summer and those which are slated to come out in the future with our sort of resident expert, James Peaty, who is himself uh, a writer uh, who has written widely for comic books, Doctor Who, 2000 AD, a bunch of places uh, um, I'm, I'm uh, too long for me to remember, as well as being a script writer and a playwright, I think, was the last uh, last time we talked to you, you. You just had a play come on. Well, a short thing. I, I wouldn't call myself a playwright. But I uh, okay. I've written some bits for theatre. You see, you see, and that's not how you do it, James. You've got to, you've got to no, pump know, up know, your know, CV. Know. You do. I, I mean, like if Steven Spielberg walks past you in the corridor, he's your executive producer. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So just before we came on, Mike, James was talking to me about um, a recent cinema experience, which is Blue Beetle, which is the new uh, DC comic book film, which apparently is not very good. James, what did you think? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's not very good, is it? I mean, I think that's, I don't think that's really a surprise. When if you look at the kind of the lack of success for this film, um, it's just a, it was just a very strange thing. I took my daughter and I to see it. You know, she's ten, and she just sort of said to me about we went to see it in the centre of town. We went to see it at Picture House Central. Mm. She liked that cinema, so that was kind of part of the trip. We were going to go to town, and she said to me, "If we hadn't spent the money, we could have walked out." Mm. Mm. and that's she, a 10 year old yeah it's a 10 year old and she just said it was i mean and it was awful i mean i think it was just it was just so derivative and so i mean i've got a bit of skin in the game as well i wrote i wrote a version of that character for dc back in the day when i wrote supergirl he was one of the characters that was in this the run that i had although i must admit he was given to me because i took that book over and he was already kind of part of the mm. deal so um I mean, I know that character. I've got. I'm a, I was, a, you know, I've worked for DC for a number of years, well, across the line, and um, so I have kind of views. <laughs> but it just it, for me, it just summed up everything that was kind of wrong with the with the current approach to all of those properties. And if you look at it across the kind of course of the year, the massive failure of Shazam earlier in the year, which was wasn't a great film, wasn't a terrible film. I thought, didn't think it was as bad as it the reviews it was certainly it was a good half hour too long as everything is mm. um and that was kind of sort of thrown onto the fire i i thought the flash i enjoyed the flash as a fan of you know that character and i thought they did quite good interesting things with batman and that but again it's a perfect example of kind of corporate meddling and no clear direction i think that film was made under three different uh, regimes mm. instigated executed and then delivered under different completely different management structures and different um desires for the company 
And um, and then you come to this, which was obviously created at the Beat Boob. It was just created as like an HBO Max film, a direct-to-video film, basically, mm. which was upgraded to a theatrical release. And you looked at it and you think, why bother? Mm. Why bother? I mean, it's just um, shocking. But I don't know. I think that the, the generally across the board, I think, apart from a few exceptions... The, the the it speaks to a bigger right a bigger problem within Hollywood of which you know I think what we're going to talk about later on is a bit taps into is kind of the exhaustion of the blockbuster. Mm. I mean, I thought Blue Beetle was completely, you know, generic and derivative, and it was like it. So th- th- this bit's like Ant Man. This bit's like um, Spy Kids because mm. it's kind of Hispanic kind of character, you know, playing with the kind of with, with that with the sort of the cultural tropes there. Of, you've got stuff from spider-man you've got a bit of iron man thrown in and there's no more kind of like uh, creative approach than that let's shovel that together it's not a badly directed film it's quite nicely done in certain places but it's just completely generic and there's no you look at it it costs 120 million dollars why did they think they were going to going to make that money back it's just crazy but i think across the board i've seen a lot of stuff this summer because of child care and all the rest of it. Um, <laughs> and some of them I'm genuinely inter- interested in. I mean, I, I mean, if you go from like a Transformers film through to Mission Impossible, the latest Mission Impossible film as well, I just think they all are completely tired mm. going mm. through the motions. And if you look at the films that have kind of done well in that area, you know, the kind of Guardians of the Galaxies and the Spider-Mans, they're very different. They're more creative. They're more imaginative. They're more, they take a few risks. You know, they do, you know, within the kind of the, the, what you can do within a blockbuster. But those are the ones that have resonated. And you look at the other ones that are like continuing flat. I mean, Indiana, Indiana Jones is a perfect example. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would, uh, I would, I watched Star, uh, sorry, uh, Spider, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And one of the things that irked me a little bit about that film was the fact that the preposition is the only thing that that is different from the from the first film. It's not Spider-Man yeah. into the Spider-Verse, it's across the... I think, wow, is that, you know, is that how we're going to, you know, even just scrolling through a menu to try to find it is kind of difficult because it's... Uh, but the second thing is, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was good fun, and I didn't finish it because I kind of knew where it was going, and I I enjoyed the first like hour or so, and after a while, it was just like having sugar rush followed by moments of sentimentality, followed by another sugar rush, followed by another bit of sentiment, and it felt like the bits where he was, you know, you've got to tell your parents who you really are bits, and uh, we're gonna have a really weird. Uh, chase with great visuals and all the rest of it felt like they were just totally different films directed by different people, which obviously they kind of are in the structure of how how these kinds of films work. But yeah, it just yeah, yeah. felt really detached. I've seen it twice, mm. and I enjoyed it both times. I enjoyed it more the second time. I think actually, I think it's more, and I think that the kind of the the kind of the coming out scene, so to speak. Mm. Uh, has a quite a good, if you didn't get to the end, has a kind of good little twist as it gets to the end of the film. Um, I think it's too long. Again, yeah. And I think the first film is kind of like a perfect sort of version of what that should be. Um, but I, I mean, I like the way that, I mean, I think where you could, with the criticism you can have of it, which is the truth, the, the truth of um, other films like of that, you know, the, the Flash as well plays with this, is that, 
you're talking about films that are only concerned with their own internal sort of mythology. Mm. Mm. They really have no, there's no other kind of, I think what was interesting in the first sort of Spider-Verse was that you take Spider-Man and you kind of like, you're broadening the kind of the legend of it. You're making it kind of, you're doing this, what you've always done, which is, just, you know, the Miles Morales character isn't really that different from Peter Parker. Right, right. <laughs> really. I mean, there are differences, but it's just, it's kind of remixed a little bit more in different ways, isn't it? Um, but with this, you're kind of like, you are playing this, you're playing the same notes, but I think, I think, I think there's, there's a lot of really kind of good stuff in it and a lot of really imaginative stuff in it. And I think in terms of it sort of drilling deeper into the kind of what it, what it's based on, on that mythology, with that kind of like backstory, all that kind of stuff. I think it does it really, really well. Um, but it, you can't do that too often. Mm. Also, mm. I think the trouble with a lot of a lot of properties is that they do, they do it. I think Spider Man is one of the few that you can do that to, because Spider Man, like Batman, is a character that has had really lots of very different and very strong kind of interpretations artistically down the years. And in terms of cinema as well, you know, right. there aren't many characters other than Batman I can think of where you've got three, you know, really successful live action incarnations. You've got a really successful animated incarnation. You've got a version of the character that's really famous in kind of video games as well. So there aren't many that have that kind of 360 degree sort of like cultural footprint. Yeah, I mean, it's right right up there with Sherlock Holmes and Dracula, you know, as... Uh... Well, they kind of are. I mean, and I think yeah. in a lot of ways, if, if you look at the failure of the Dracula films that have come out, this is two that have tanked, haven't they? Yeah. And I wouldn't have thought that you'd get another Sherlock Holmes film out that would be particularly successful. Um, in a way, they've supplanted those characters as the... as They're the sort of 21st century versions in, media, in other media that you know, have their roots in the 20th century, much like those characters are 19th century characters that then kind of dominated the 20th century media landscape. I think that that's kind of where they are. Mm, uh, mm. Which kind of is interesting as well when you then consider a character like James Bond, who I think is a kind of very interesting inflection point in their history where I'm not sure whether what they do next will really make much impact. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it really, I think they... I think they're going to have to do something because I've I've been thinking of a rewatch of Dirty Harry, uh, the series. Mm. Uh, they're not great movies. The first one's a great movie. The second one is is a really good movie, and then you're sort yeah, of well, yeah, you know, really declining re returns. But I'm kind of interested in the idea of looking at a character through the course of a decade and a half and just seeing how he becomes, you know, how he changes and how the world around him is changing. Um, and and there's no sense that anybody yet has thought, hey, you know what we really need is an updated Dirty Harry. He seems to be a mm -hmm. character who's who's very locked in the world that that was those two decades. But with James Bond, he's already survived, what is it, 40, 50 years now? 60. And 60 years, you know. Um, you could imagine a reinvention. You could imagine him going through something quite radical maybe getting a younger actor than than is normal or but but there is a huge risk in doing that i mean i've i felt that with indiana jones because mm -hmm. with the last indiana jones the one before this one there was a real sense that there was a possibility sheila booth was going to take over the character take over the you know yeah, yeah. we were going to get a bunch of mutt films um <laughs> <laughs> which, yes. which um 
Yeah, we should do that. But it's like, no, we're just gonna do we're just gonna keep Harrison Ford and when he's gone, this is it. And I, I don't I don't know. I don't think there's gonna be any any further exploration. What did what I mean, you really hated the uh, the the latest iteration. Well, of Indiana Jones. Yeah. I thought it was just a, I just thought it was a badly conceived film. I mean, I think the, you, you can't get away from I think there's some scenes in it that are quite good. I think there's the bits in New York at the beginning are all right. The minute it becomes an Indiana Jones film, it just falls apart because you've got you're dealing with the problem of an 80-year-old man who can't do anything. Mm, and that's yeah. not what anyone wants watches Indiana Jones films for. Even in like the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, he's they do at least a good a, a passable job of faking the fact that he's in the middle of the action. And he is still in the middle of the action for quite a lot of it. You know, he's fighting that big Russian at the end, you know, face to face, whatever, a big fist fight. Mm. In that opening kind of sequence in the in the Area 51 in Roswell, he's like hanging off of things and he's using his brain and he's kind of opening shells and there's magnetized containers and all the rest of it. And it's like that's an Indiana Jones film. In this, you've got the kind of beginning where he kind of seems to, he's sort of a digital Indiana Jones that doesn't seem to be worried about the weight of physics. You know, he can be hung by his neck and not die <laughs> in the first yeah. five seconds. And then afterwards, I mean, and it's just, it, the whole thing felt kind of uh, overly manicured. And also as well, I just think it looked like a film that was just been previs to death you plug all the bits in together where you got him in close up and you do this. And then he breaks his shoulder during the film. Mm. And then at the end, he's shot in the shoulder and he's lying down for like the last half an hour or whatever. And it's like, sort of, that's not really what <laughs> anyone wants. Yeah. Yeah. And, but also I thought that the, the whole thing of the MacGuffin and everything, and I think Indiana Jones is an interesting one because Indiana Jones kind of approaches, I think it speaks to a broader problem with the whole thing about franchises now and where Hollywood is with them, is that they, the original four film, I mean, I'll include the original four films, the four films that are produced by George Lucas and directed by Steven Spielberg, regardless of what your view of any of them is creatively, whether which one's your favourite, which one's the worst, whatever, each one is about a kind of set of ideas and beliefs, and Indiana Jones approaches those beliefs and those ideas, that relic, that MacGuffin, as if it is real. So, we approach the Judeo-Christian stuff in Raiders of the Lost. I guess Raiders of the Lost Ark is more Judaism. Last Crusade's more Christianity. You've got the the, the Indian Hindu stuff in um, Temple of Doom, and then you've got the kind of sci-fi sort of uh, crystal skull kind of stuff. But in all of those, they approach them as if they were a real thing. Mm. And the rules of that are kind of applied quite rigorously to how they engage with those things. This was like you've got a dial that doesn't, which is sort of vaguely exists but doesn't really exist. Archimedes did not travel through time, and it's just sort of there. It's kind of a MacGuffin that's there that allows us allows us to do this last bit, which is just like it basically looked like horrible histories. That's what I thought when I watched it. It was, like, it was just, it was kind of. And there's a thing where you got Nazis kind of in in sort of ancient Greece or whatever it was. Was it ancient Greece? Ancient no, Greece? it was Sicily. It was Sicily Sicilian. that they were they were trying to, you know, um, they were flying over in a scene where everybody's running around yeah. inside a plane, and I couldn't tell what anybody wanted to actually do. Do they no, want exactly? To... So, but that's a great that, in a way that's a kind of great sort of pulp idea. If it's done well, you could say I could have fun. But it becomes 
but it's a bit Iron Sky. It's not Indiana Jones. Yes, yes. Iron Sky is a brilliant. I, I didn't think of that at the time, but that's an absolutely perfect example. But that's kind of like, you know, it's a kind of fundamental misunderstanding in a way of Indiana Jones, because I think what you've got there is you've got film that, that plays to the actor's idea of what the character is, but the actual creative people are no longer part of the equation. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so what, what makes Harrison happy? Well, he gets to do some scenes with Indy where he's an old man and there's, there's some okay moments with that, but that's not an Indiana Jones film. So I think with that, you're, and you're then playing on the wrong. It's very much like the Star Wars sequels. You know, they they, they take all. They don't really understand what they're making. Mm, mm. They know they've got a brand that they can sell. I mean, if anything, the I think the the post original trilogy. I, I mean, even the the prequels are, are 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 not in retrospect are not bad. Just in the way Kingdom of Crystal Skull. I'm more willing to say there are quite four. There's a, a quartet of films mm. that, that are more or less the same, even though different quality, obviously, but but live in the same world. Uh, after I saw the fifth one, um, yeah, uh, but the the oh, which sorry, what was what was the the films that we were talking about that I've just had a you brain freeze. Star Wars, yeah. Uh, when I saw Tatooine and I saw Luke, he's a farmhand. He's relatable. He could be dropped out of a Larry McMurtry novel. He could be in the Last mm-hmm. Picture Show. He's going to get. He's going to the local town, which is miles away from his farm. Mm-hmm. All of those things are. This is a place where nothing happens. If you read the Alan Dean Foster novelization, he's watching the space battle battle through his binoculars up in the mm-hmm. upper atmosphere, and uh, well, beyond the upper atmosphere, out in space. Everything that's come after that, including the cartoons and the TV series and the the J.J. Abrams reboot, everything that comes after that is telling you that Tatooine is like practically the center of the universe where everything is Mm. happening all the time. Obi-Wan Kenobi doesn't live in a hut where he's been retired for 40, 50 years. He's been having adventures and then Mm -hmm. popping back to the hut. And that's just like... That completely spoils the idea of the original film. You know, you know what longer you've you've ruined, you've polluted that atmosphere. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think the I don't know, probably the Obi One thing by that point, you know, it's like well, everyone else is having a go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's almost like a, a doff of the cap to the actor, as you say. You know, it's all like let's give let's give you and you and something to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's fine. I quite enjoyed Obi Wan Kenobi. I'm not saying it's the best thing I've ever seen. Far from it. And, and it completely, obviously, it does completely contradict so many things in Star Wars. But um, I kind of think that that's kind of closer to Star Wars than so many other things. I mean, I think because he's a character that is absolutely rooted in the kind of the Star Wars story. I think the trouble you have with Star Wars, Star Wars isn't really a universe. It's a story about Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. ultimately Darth Vader, and some of these other kind of ancillary characters, and. The universe is just, you know, it's not very well sketched and not very well defined. And when you try to then kind of expand it into different areas, it doesn't really work. Yeah, it's not like Star Trek. Star Trek's a much better kind of, much more rigorously kind of like it, the canvas of that is always always broad, and it's not based around those kind of central characters. I mean, what the thing I think with the prequel, the prequel films that that does work with them is the fact that you're still dealing with those kind of core characters it's the story of darth vader it's the story of obi-wan kenobi whether it's the story you wanted them to tell (laughs) in the way you wanted it told is you know that's a different discussion 
but it's very much drawn from that. It's kind of, it's, they stack up. They're about something. Whether you like them or not is not the kind of the point. That's a subjective response. But if you look at it objectively, there's a clear and coherent thing within all of that. There's a clear and coherent thing within the kind of original films. There's a clear and coherent thing within those original Indiana Jones films. But when you get to the, I mean, there's nothing in those new Star Wars films that's, I mean, the only one that I think that actually that works is Rogue One. Mm. And even that, I don't think, works as well as people say. I think it works okay in the second half because there's some stakes that we know are up for grabs. And it does a, the best space battle since Return of the Jedi. Mm. Um, mm. But the first half of the film is a choppy mess. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it gets better when, you know, when, when Darth Vader appears. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I and I think at that point the bar had been lowered to the extent that we were yeah. we were quite happy to to receive a, a moderately good film as a as a great film. Yeah, um, no, and, I think and that just, ending does does you know cover a lot of sins. Yeah, 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 it's good. I mean, and I think that the action in that works well. It's got this kind of sense of it. It's got also there's a thing in that with the kind of I think the thing with it is the the what's the kind of ethical and moral kind of thing that's driving the story and in and in that you know they've got to get the plans because they want to fight rebellion and they're doing this so there's the sacrifice is kind of for something that kind of no one you can't tell me what the stakes are in this the the jj abrams ryan johnson jj abrams trilogy i mean we see a planet get destroyed but what planet is it who's on there how does this universe work who's the who's the you know the new the first i don't understand who they are first order even mm. now i don't understand who they are yeah. Yeah, the first uh, order, but they come second. They come after the. Exactly. Can't we call them the second order? Wouldn't that be more? Right. Let's get to some some films we, we that we liked, so that we're not always <laughs> negging on these uh, on these poor poor I studios. I think I think this interesting though because I think this all kind of like sits within the same kind of it's all within the same kind of cinematic ecosphere, isn't it? Because if we're talking about Oppenheimer, the kind of the, the this should have been a film that Christopher Nolan made at Warner Brothers. Right. Like every other film yeah. he's made yeah. in the last sort of 15 years or whatever. And yet it wasn't. And that's there are a bunch of reasons for that. And that partly is streaming. That's partly a change of management. That's a change of position. I don't know if you saw the story recently. Apparently they paid him seven figures, Warner Brothers, for Tenet as a way to sort of make peace with him. Right, right. Um, just before this came out. So... There's clearly been, <laughs> yeah, some 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 issues behind the scenes, and there's a reason why this is now a huge success for Universal rather than for Warner Brothers. In wow. a year where Universal could have, you know, Warner Brothers obviously could have really used it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to put this in context, to put this in context, I went to see this uh, in Italy. I saw it in Italian, so uh, but my Italian's great, and that obviously meant uh, because of the dubbing, I didn't have any issues with the dialogue. Um, Although the dubbing does tend to very much attempt to uh, um, very much uh, uh, replicate the original sound design, and they're very good at it. You know, okay. uh, you know, a voice on the radio sounds like a voice on the radio. Doesn't sound like a. Um, the cinema was full on a Wednesday night in the summer in Italy, and that is. It's, open, isn't it? it's very. It's the first night. First night. Oh. And nobody goes to the cinema in Italy in the summer because everybody's at the sea. Everybody's 
uh, in August. Everybody's out of town. They're not in, you know, and the cinema's full. And I've never seen that. Usually a Christopher Nolan film would come out in September, October. Even if it's come out everywhere else in July, it would come out in September, October, because that's when when the cinemas are open and people are going back to see films. Mm-hmm. The cinema was full and um, you, you just got this feeling that people were absolutely engaged in it, right, fully. Um Personally, I just thought it was a masterpiece. I got halfway through and I had a couple of moments where I was thinking, I'm not sure that I like the way this is going. And then I I think the film itself sort of turns around and answers those questions very effectively and 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 is much is very slippy in the way it does that. And and I think some of the criticisms I've heard lodged against this movie. Um, are kind of invited by the movie and then answered by the movie. I don't, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I find it's like people have watched half the film or have formed mm-hmm. their opinion before they've gone to see it and not actually been watching necessarily. Um, what what was your take on it, James? What on on the first time I've seen it twice. Right. Okay. I'm going to go definitely go and see it again on the big screen. Um, no doubt about it. Uh, first impressions. Well, I, I, my, when I saw it, when I saw it, I thought this is probably his best film right right I don't what, this... what was your previous best film by him by the way that's always an interesting starting point i don't know i mean that's a that's an interesting one isn't it um he's like kubrick i think in the sense that it's very difficult to put your finger up because he does no, different no, things very well you know yes no 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 that's right i ooh, that's a hard one it's a difficult one um i mean i sh- should say memento I don't know that I've. I mean, I love Memento as a as a movie. I'd say The Prestige, maybe, but would it be The Dark Knight? Could it be Inception? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of his films. Full stop. Um, I think I would say one of the great pleasures of of, of my adult life has been watching him make films over a. A number of years. I mean, remember Philip French. Remember Philip French in a review reading that, saying that he, the, one of the great pleasures of his of his late life was uh, read it was seeing the films of Pixar, obviously the early 15, 20 years of it, and and Christopher Nolan. And obviously, yeah. he's got he kind of wrote the, one of the big reviews to follow him, wasn't he? Right at the start. Mm. Um, I mean, I think in, in terms of his popular films, I think his Batman films are phenomenal. I don't think they've been has been they'll never be. I don't think surpassed with that character. That will be the high point because uh, I think they're about something. They're about many things. They're very entertaining. They're great thrillers. They're great action movies, and they're great pieces of filmmaking as well. So if you, I mean, there's a I think there's a Paul Thomas Anderson quote, isn't there, where he said they're the highest form of commerce meeting the highest form of art, mm. cinematic mm. art, and I think that that's probably correct. Um, and I think. Yeah, I mean, I I read, I was lucky enough. I, I worked did the some of the comic stuff for the Dark Knight back into so it would have been two thousand and seven, and I read the script of the Dark Knight probably nine months before it came out, mm. and I've never really I've never been in that position where you go in and read the movie, and I had to do some stuff based around it. I had to adapt some bits, blah blah blah. Long story short, anyway, then the film comes out and you see it sort of nine months later at the sort of press screening, and everybody's kind of standing there cheering. I've never seen that at a press screening. Everybody's standing there cheering at the end. Um, uh, and it 
living up to expectations. But also, I remember reading it at the time, thinking, "This is great." I was quite agnostic about Batman Begins. I have to say, when I first saw it, when I was because I'm a you've been a huge kind of comic fan. It wasn't really made for me. Mm. Mm. The thing, all the things that people found surprising, maybe in the kind of the, the movie going audience, were not really interesting to me. I'd seen those stories done before. I'd read the Denny O'Neill stuff. I'd seen the Neil Adams stuff. I'd seen the Frank Miller stuff. Um, and then, but I think the Dark Knight did something really kind of different. And then, but reading it on the page, it was kind of like a bit of a wall. This is, it starts off, it's like a bit like what you were saying with Oppenheimer. It goes off on when you think, well, maybe it's, it's some issues. And then it flips it round and solves those issues and answers those issues and goes into something that's very, very different and very bold. Um, so I would, I mean, I think those films are terrific. I think what you did with Inception is terrific. I think Interstellar is very, very underrated. Yeah, I, I agree. Think, I agree. I think, I think, in, I think what, what, what I think from this is not so much what's my favourite, is that I think this is the culmination of the thing he's been working on since he finished the Batman movies. That's my mm. feeling, is mm. that there's, with the beginning of, of Interstellar, he moved to working with Hoyt Van Hoytema. Um, Slowly, what he's been doing over the course of those films, he's been shedding the people he worked with before. So Lee Smith hasn't edited a movie since Dunkirk. Zimmer hasn't scored a movie since Dunkirk. He's kind of opened up and changed, and obviously Wally Fister left with the last Batman film. So he's got a different kind of era of collaborators. And Ruth de, Ruth de Jong designed this, not Nathan. I mean, Nathan Crowley's designed most of his films, but not all of them. Um, Ruth de Jong came, has come into this film. Um, so there's a different kind of f- feel to some of the collaborators I think a really, I think Interstellar is a very is a really underrated film, and I think he was going for something there that's very, very that was very different. It was sold as being the next kind of Inception, and it's nothing like that. No, no, not that sort of film at all. Um, and I think, but I think also what he's dealing been dealing with all that in all these films is about this thing about Oppenheimer. Obviously, Oppenheimer was mentioned in Tenet. You know, the whole thing about I think there's a big thing in his films now about being older and mortality and the fear of the planet so you look at like interstellar it's a film about climate change Mm. fundamentally yeah if you look at dunkirk it's about this kind of all enveloping thing that can't you can't stop you're trying to escape from this there's this thing about escaping from this kind of crushing whether that's the future, whether that's climate, whether that's the nuclear fear, all of these things. I mean, and I think in Tenet, that's that. I mean, that's almost like a horror movie. Yeah, um, Tenet, again, I think is underrated. I think that Tenet, has... Tenet is a film I think will be very much reappraised because yeah. I think Tenet is a film... Is, is, I that's think his Tenet... Jackie Brown. I'm saying it now. That's his Jackie Brown. Yeah, it's kind of his Blade Runner as well, I think. Mm. In it's much more than, say, Inception or any of those. I think there's... there's it's, I think what's there is there's a loosening of the filmmaking. I think that's the thing that's been happening for a long time with the actors and the... And he's also now seems to be fully in the mode of he's writing the screenplays himself. He's not working with his brother. Something about Interstellar is the beginning of that. Obviously, that's a Jonathan Nolan thing with him as well. But from there, from Dunkirk, Tenet, this, you're getting him much more back to what he was doing at the very early days of his career, you know, the kind of the followings, the mementos. He is writing these films and conceiving these films whole cloth. He's making them three years apart, not doing like one every two years or something like that, like he mm. was at certain points. Um, 
so there's a very controlled thing with the filmmaking, I think. Um, but I do think there's a loosening. I think they're becoming they're more character led. I mean, I think I think Tenet is interesting because it doesn't use any of the actors that he's used in the past. Um, maybe in a way that it's a it's a kind of step back into kind of the the sort of action blockbuster thing. But I think actually the the thing I feel is that he's kind of moving away from that. Oh yeah, I mean uh, Oppenheimer. I know all the publicity prior to Oppenheimer was it's going to be uh, they did this nuclear explosion without using CGI and yada yada yada, and I, I and I thought well that is a is an amazing scene. It's one of the it, it's so well done, but it's not actually the explosion which is well done. It's the no, it's, it's, exactly and and ninety nine percent of the film. Is not the explosion. So, it re- really, if that's all you're going for, you're, you're not going to get much. And it's almost as if there's, um, I mean, what you're getting is an intense, highly spoken, highly uh, complicated, highly nuanced drama. Um, mm. It's a little bit like Dunkirk. I think Dunkirk played this trick, this sort of three card Monty trick, where publicity wise, where I think everybody was sold on the idea that it was going to be saving Private Ryan. And mm. it was sort of like aggressively bloodless, you know. It's it's like there's no blood in that film, and yet, mm. um, and yet he, it's almost like a, a throwdown of a gauntlet to to retrospectively to Spielberg, saying I can make just as tense a movie about the Second World War, and not nobody gets their face blown off, and you know, violence happens, but you, it's the violence of drowning, it's the violence of all these other things, it's the violence of the bullets that don't hit you. Well, you know? he doesn't titillate with violence, he's never done mm. that, he doesn't do that mm. in any of the, the things, there's a horror, there's a huge amount of horror in Tenet, with the, with the kind of buildings going backwards, and that is the, it's unnatural, there's a, mm. there's a even though it's, it's not uncanny. Bloody, yeah, it's, it's not right, there's something wrong. And there's seen it. I mean, I think in, I watched Dunkirk last night, actually, in preparation for this, mainly because it's 100 minutes. So it's easy to watch. <laughs> um, I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. Um, and what struck me about it is obviously it's hugely, it's hugely tense and the lurching horror of it. And there is little, very little blood. Um, and there's very little overt violence. It's kind of like implied violence a lot of it. I mean, and obviously there are moments when that hits. And it's very, as you, you know, the, the mechanics of like uh, wages of fear and, you know, Hitchcock and, you know, some Freakins films, you know, as well, you know, God rest him. Um, there's an element of that very strongly played in that. But what I thought was interesting in that is that it's really kind of mad in terms of the structure. But you've got the day, the week, the hour sort of like playing and then all close. And so it's very rational in that sense. But it's also very, um, there's like dramas nested within the drama. Mm. Mm. You've got the story with the, the the Tommies on the sea and the kind of stuff with the the, the Frenchman inside who gets left behind and drowned in the, in the thing and doesn't get away, does he? Yeah. Um, and then you've got all the stuff with Tom Hardy stuff with the, in the plane, but then you've also got all the stuff with Mark Rylance and Killian uh, Murphy and uh, Barry Keegan on the boat, which is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And I think also the coda when they come back at the end, and then obviously you got Branner and all that doing their kind of little, the kind of stuff on the pier. On the on what the, do you see? The... Home. <laughs> he's, he's. I mean, Branner in small doses is brilliant. 
Yeah, he's used very well in Christopher Nolan's films. I think he's a better. Yeah. He's also he's better when he's not directed by himself. He's a he's a terrible actor when he's directed by himself. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. But he's a brilliant actor when he's used properly. Um, but then I think, I, but yeah, so I think that, yeah, it's all kind of this, and then that whole kind of like sort of coming home stuff. I do think with Dunkirk was brilliant though. It is the only film that is also that manages to be a Christopher Nolan Allo Allo crossover. Did you say know? again? <laughs> it's Christopher Nolan Allo Allo crossover. Oh, who's the actor? Who is it? Well, his aunt is Helga. Of course, yes, well, yes. Know, he's married yeah. to his uncle Jonathan Nolan, who's John Nolan, who's in the who's at the end, who's in Batman Begins and all the other Batman films. But he's at the end. She's on the boat at one point. She's one of the nurses getting oh them all towards so the end I, of the film. There you go, beautiful. And if you if you read the screenplay of Dunkirk, there's an interview. It said took back and forth between the two brothers talking about it, and then they tell a story about Auntie Kim being in the show of Hello Hello and a German guest. Coming oh. around as someone dressed in an SS costume knocks on the door to say, "Is Kim there? We need to take her for the uh, rehearsal or something like that." <laughs> Truly, one of the best uh, anecdotes I've ever seen. What, what a, what a, what a world he lives in! What a world he's come from! Totally, but totally bizarre, but but kind of brilliant as well at the same time. Um, and they address the LOL thing in the in the in that interview, which I think is really great. As well. uh, just one <laughs> second. I'm just going to pause it. Also, the thing that I think is interesting about Dunkirk and Oppenheimer is that they're his two most commercially successful films, and yet it could be argued that they're his two sort of least obviously commercially attractive. You know, I mean, you have um, you know DiCaprio in Inception, you have the Batman films being massive, you know, franchise movies, you have um you know even something like Insomnia is you know it's Al Pacino, it's Robin Williams, star power. And in mm. these films, you don't have any. I mean, I got a bit of a. People came back at me for saying there's no real star power in Oppenheimer, but I don't see there is. I mean, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh is not opening any movies. No one's saying. I mean, she's a great actress. I love her to bits, um, but she's a she's a got a bit part. You know, it's not. Um, you know, and Killian Murphy likewise is no one's. You know, look at him in in. Uh, Dunkirk, you know, he's playing a small role in a thing, and now he's leading a, a Christopher Nolan movie. I don't see. What do you think? Well, I think the role. Of, I think stardom's different, isn't it? I mean, I think you'd you'd have to say. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. I think is carries a certain amount of weight, but does he open a film outside of being Iron Man or Sherlock Holmes? I mean, the Sherlock Holmes films are years ago, so outside of being Iron Man, nothing he's done has really made it huge. But he does give you. I think there is. I think that he was. There's clever. an accumulative yeah. thing. I think of having so many people. That's yeah, true. Yeah. And and Matt Damon. So I think there is a collective star power, but it's a collective star power. It's not individual. It's not based around. I mean, Killian Murphy is a different kettle of fish because he's really a character actor. I mean, I guess he's kind of like his status is different now as a result of Peaky Blinders. Mm, yeah. Or whether that that doesn't necessarily translate into opening a giant movie, um, but I think. You've got you've you you've got that accumulation of acting power throughout the kind of cast, which is very attractive. And you know, I think this writers the, the actor strike is obviously a very good example of this. I mean, June being moved as a result of of, of that just announced today. Oppenheimer was able to to really kind of leverage all that stuff just before the strike. You know, they they did the red carpet, then the strike was called, and they left, didn't they? That was the so they were able to get all that. But the amount of material that's out there for them to kind of market based around, you know, 
yeah, I don't know, uh, Emily Blunt sitting with Matt Damon or Crillian Murphy sitting with Robert Downey Jr. or that thing that was on Google or Wired, which was Christopher Nolan and Robert Downey Jr. together, which was hilarious. Yeah, I enjoyed that. It's a strange thing to see. It was so kind of like good. Mm. <laughs> Those um, things are usually not that good, but I know they were quite. It was funny. It was really strange. It was the collision of these opposites, and yet, you know, I think that I think that's. I think I think there isn't a star power. I mean, I think that there is a kind of collective kind of like weight to it. But I think it, I think the appeal of the film is cross generational because I know. I mean, a, a lot of young people have gone to see it, which is which is clear. Partly that's the sort of Barbie thing. But I think I know a lot of them. Um, I mean, like my dad and his other half are in their mid 70s and they went to see it. Mm, Loved mm, it. Mm. And it's like, they wouldn't have gone to see a Christopher Nolan film five years ago. Mm, right, right. Wouldn't have done it. So you look at that and you say, well, it's something. I think it's cl- what's clever about it as a, I think is a piece of, you write about it being a drama. It's a drama, but it's a thriller. It's in, in a way, it's kind of. We're talking about Dunkirk as a parallel. There's three dramas in Dunkirk that are kind of nested within each other. And that's true of Oppenheimer in a slightly different way. You've got this kind of historical kind of coming of age story, which could be a story in and of itself, where he's in Europe at the beginning and he's in He's moving through, and know. they include the story about the apple, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got the middle section, which is the kind of the thriller, which is the kind of very similar to Inception. Actually, it's putting the team together to do the stuff. It's like exactly that the where heist. They're, they're preparing the heist and all the rest of it. And then you've got this kind of courtroom drama, essentially, at the end. This drama with people in, you know, people in rooms, which in a way goes back to following. That's what I thought watching it. It's like. Mm. The beginning following is built around these three nested things, timelines. He's played with time before in other ways, but never really in this way since following, which is that you've got this kind of like conversation. It's a it's, a, it's an interrogation, isn't it? In following, mm. his uncle and uh, and Jeremy, whoever the God, I can't remember the actor's name, who's the lead in that, and then the other spokes of the story kind of come off of off of that. But you've got that kind of intense kind of conversation across the table, and that's essentially what you've got in the scenes in the where Oppenheimer's being, you know, um, questioned, and then then obviously the stuff with Strauss as well. So, uh, what struck me, I think, I think as well, if you watched Oppenheimer and Dunkirk, there's a lot, there's a whole range of influences which I think are interesting. One of them is obviously the influence of Chariots of Fire on him. Mm. In terms of music, I mean, you listen to the music of Dunkirk, you listen to the music, particularly the music of Oppenheimer. There's mm. a huge kind of Vangelis. That's stuff. a really good shout. I, that's Going a very on. good shout. And I think that the, the kind of Englishness of Dunkirk actually reminds me of, of the Englishness of uh, Chariots of Fire, but also the kind of the sort of the, the sort of the rivalry between Strauss and Oppenheimer in a way. I know Amadeus has been the one that they've talked about. You know, people. Mm, Salieri. I think there's a lot of stuff between the stuff between Abrahams and Eric Liddell in in Chariots of Fire. That's very much you can see Chariots of Fire is a huge influence on the way they structure. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B two B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B two B either. That's why if you're a B two B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. 
all the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The prestige as well. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, prestige is probably one of my favorites of Nolan's. And it's kind of interesting that I read the Christopher Priest book after I saw the film and much preferred the film. It was, Mm. you know, the Christopher Priest books. Okay, it's good. I'm I'm sure if I'd read it first, I would have been like, this is great. But watching the movie, after watching the movie, I was reading the book going, this is nowhere near as subtle and interesting. And doesn't have never read the book. Yeah, yeah. I met Christopher Priest. Right. And the conversation I had, Chris, all he did was slag off Christopher Nolan. Interesting. <laughs> so I thought, I'm never going to read the book. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, yeah. That was very generous of him. So um... yes, yeah, um, yeah. It, it never, you'll never forgive someone who does you a good turn. I guess. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that those are that's a huge kind of um, influence on it, and that texture and tone of Vangelis. I mean, there's obviously the Blade Runner thing as well. But I think, I mean, Nolan is very much in the vein of those filmmakers, you know, in the, if you read the Tom Schoen book, you know, his dad was a kind of ad, ad guy, wasn't he? Who who kind of knew Ridley Scott mm. and knew Hugh Hudson and knew Adrian Lyne. And you can see, I mean, I think there's a lot of Jacob's Ladder in Tenet. Mm. I think there's a lot of, um, and there's a lot of Chariots of Fire in the in, in, in a lot of Nolan's films. I think it's interesting is that the war in Oppenheimer as well, you've got the thing, there's a very American view of the war in Oppenheimer and there's a very British view of the war in Dunkirk. And I kind of feel he's, you know, you look at his sympathies while he's the kind of half American, half British, but the British bit of him is really kind of powerful. Mm. Really, so that's the thing that gets me in Tenet is that you could be watching scenes in that that could be drawn from when he was doing following, you know, all the scenes of the little mm. kind of back streets in London, only someone who lived in London and kind of knows London would shoot in those kinds of places. There's an authenticity to, to, to that. Um, and Elizabeth Debicki's character is very much a kind of a character. You, I'm sure they, you know, the kind of social circles that they are, that him and Emma Thomas come from, that's a person they know. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, scene, the scene with Michael Caine in the club, where yeah, yeah. you know, now there's some, there's a, there's a, there's an honesty and a truth in Tenet, and I think all the stuff with Debicki and Branagh, that is such an English story because it's Abramovich. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And that's I think that, you know, I think he, that, I think, that, and I've read an interview where he quite likes living in America. And he said, mm-hmm. like, but Emma Thomas really yearns for home." And I think with him, there's always, and there's a, there's a whole thing in this, this sort of sense of what is America, what is Britain. And I think, and that's the tension that's in those kind of, those those filmmakers as well, Ridley and Judson. They're British filmmakers, but they're kind of going for America. Tony Scott as well is, is, is the same. But the interesting thing about Ridley and Tony is, uh, and I, I do talk about them by their first names like that because we are pals. <laughs> <laughs> in Tony's case, we were. Uh, but 
they never made a film in England. I mean, as in they never made a film unless I'm I'm, I'm skipping something. Maybe you could argue the Duelists, but but not really. I mean, he, Ridley Scott doesn't make a, a like a British film. I'm not talking about the production, obviously. I'm talking about the setting. Um, and no. and so, um, it, it, whereas Nolan sort of even when he makes Batman, you know, Batman lives in an English country house. Even you know that, that's supposed to be upstate New York. Yeah, but um, I think that's because I think Rid, Ridley Scott and Tony Scott are northern. The class thing is different. Yeah, yeah. Their their kind of their class their classicism is about. I think they they could not have become who they were. I mean, they did in in advertising, but that that that, that there's a kind of on your uppers kind of northern kind of striver element to to, to them mm. i'm not knocking that i think that that's 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 what gives the two of them a lot of the energy and power of their films and what drives them um but i think you know no but nolan is someone of boarding school you know he's 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 mm. the upper class you know he's the, at the very least he's the upper middle class you know it's like and emma thomas is a, is you know she was going to go either go into the diplomatic or and she ended up becoming a film producer. So, mm. you know, that's... Or MI5. <laughs> yeah, they're drawn from... Or MI5, yeah, they're drawn from a very different kind of strata of English society. Mm. Um, so the... And I think what's interesting in that, he said, oh, the, 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 the public school politics allowed me to navigate the politics of Hollywood. Mm. Mm. I can do... I don't think he comes in as a salesman in the way that Ridley Scott comes in and says, I'm going to do this in the way Tony Scott used to do that. I think he's kind of, I think he's much more political. I think that's mm. the other thing that's really interesting in, in Oppenheimer is it's his most political film. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I, I can't think of another filmmaker who would feature as its main character, uh, a, a, a quasi communist mm. uh, and elevates him. Who would, I mean, you know, Warren Beatty made Reds and sort of, you know, would be. Well, like Reds was interesting. I think Reds, Reds is a film I thought of with Oven Island. Mm, mm. Well, that's the last film I can think of that had a communist as a as a, a main character in a Hollywood movie. I think, well, you'd have to go back to I me mean, to the left. You'd have to think of stuff like Good Night and Good Luck. Maybe. And he's not yeah, communist. Yeah, but he's not bit... communist. He's a, that's, a, oh. that's a liberal, you know, um, that's, li- it's that's the last time I've ever heard anyone talk about sort of Harold Lasky in the yeah in exactly and being a fellow <laughs> traveler and and supporting the Spanish Civil War. I mean, and all that stuff is obviously you know I've read the book American Prometheus, which is you know what what Nolan's basing his screenplay off, and it's extremely that's all in there. It's not, none of this is uh, in any way. In fact, I I thought I mean that's where I think criticism of the Gene Tatlock the treatment of Gene Tra- Tatlock is, is wrong. I mean, and his wife is wrong, Kitty. Um, those characters are, are kind of who those people were. That's not him sort of reducing them to types or this that or the other. In fact, I thought in both those cases, uh, because of the, also because of the quality of the actresses involved. They were really rich, deep characters. I, I didn't see other people had said, "Oh, you know, the first time a woman speaks is twenty minutes into the film, and and then the next scene she's having a sex scene." I just thought, "Well, Jesus Christ!" That the fact that you're counting the minutes and you're doing a sort of Bechdel test on it is a very narrow way of approaching cinema. I think. 
or anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Or, 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 yeah, um, I mean, if we're going to do a numbers it's, game, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, the Tatlock thing is she's not a she's not she's a major part of it. She's a she's a she's she's a small part, but she's a very important part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this the thing for Emily Blunt. I mean, it's totally under sort of like statement about Emily Blunt because she's like in the background. If you watch the scene where she, you know, where he's being questioned and she's sitting behind him and she's kind of doing whatever she's doing with her hands, you know, she, she's there. Yeah. You know, if someone doesn't say anything in a scene doesn't mean they're not like stealing the scene or not hugely important. And also there's a reason she sat behind him as well. He's, um, I think what's it, that's what's fascinating about it is it's, if, if you watch that film and say it's all about the kind of the, um, the foregrounding and, you know, the valour of the white man. You haven't watched the second half of the film. It's about the absolute destruction. And there's the bit where she grabs him, isn't there, where she says she can't commit the sin and and then kind of like, I can't remember what the line is, but you absolve yourself of the guilt, you know, with that. And she kind of basically slaps him back into um thing. And he goes to see his mate and he says, we're terrible, selfish people. It's like that's because people can be terrible, selfish people. You know, it's um that's unfortunately the way people are, you know, who, who uh, he then sells down the river. If you're paying attention, he then uh, yeah, yeah, completely yeah, he betrays. And I love the fact that in many ways that um, role that Emily Blunt has as Kitty is um, set up to be in the worst version of this film would be the supportive wife who says, when you've done this, Robert, come back to your family but instead is a woman who drinks way too much and and doesn't like her children you know and and has no maternal feelings and and thinks i can't you know i've been with him all day you handle it every time you see the babies they're screaming you know and and it doesn't set up a dichotomy of domestic bliss that you're sacrificing versus the world of work which is more active and interesting to you uh and more morally complex it's just like no you're not getting going to get any you know, he was he was not you know he was friends to animals and small children. That's not gonna gonna come in like it would, as I say, in a worse film. Well, brilliance goes a long way, but there's a great line, isn't it? It's the line later on where he said it's about a third of the way through, not even a third of the way through. It's in the opening part of the film where he talks about you know the the you know what is it that when they're black we talk about black holes and it's like the gravity pulls all the light in mm. as it's dying like a dead star or a dying star or whatever, and that's the film. Because the second half of the film is he's the dying star after the explosion, and that's why the second half of the film is in black and white. Yeah, it's like I've never seen that. Not seen anyone mention that at all. It's that's like really interesting. Yeah, woven yeah. into the fabric of the whole thing is is that what you've got is a story about a human life, and I yeah. think that's one of the things that's really kind of powerful and moving about the film. It's you know it's about this kind of fire of intelligence. I mean, it's mythical as well. I mean, that's why it's called American Prometheus. I mean. I wonder if Ridley Scott hadn't made Prometheus, whether he'd have called it Prometheus. Yeah, because it even has the title explained at the beginning, even though yeah, it's yeah. not. It, 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 I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it would definitely be called Prometheus without, without that, or American yeah. Prometheus, like like the book. Um, I also thought it was very interesting right at the beginning that it had that those subtitles of fission and fusion, and you thought, oh, okay, here we're going to get like a Dunkirk thing, and and those are right at the beginning and not and, and are not sort of mentioned, but but they sort of organise those two strands of his interview and and the interview shuts. Well, that's right, and I think that it, well, it is like Dunkirk in that sense. It's mm. a, it's, it's a double strand rather than a triple strand. It's but it's yes, so you, you've got you know. 
and yeah, I mean, the, the kind of the difference between um, fusion and fusion is a kind of, you know, what you do, you crack open. I mean, I wonder how much of any, I mean, a filmmaker that, he, that I think he's a huge influence on him, which is massively under kind of discussed is David Lynch. Mm. I think he talks about that. And I think if you watch Tenet, I think, you know, there's red rooms and blue rooms. Mm. there's blue and red you know it's like it could be the red room in twin peaks you know you've got the blue room which is very like the stuff in blue velvet you've got people wearing masks like frank in blue velvet mm. you've got um people talking backwards and moving backwards like in the red room in in, in twin peaks i mean it's like that's it's very pretty, interesting yeah clear. i would never i would never think of him as a i mean that's the other thing is i've never seen a film and, and here I would compare it to, say, The Theory of Everything, a, a film that I didn't like, um, th where the idea of thinking about stuff was actually visualized in a compelling way. So when you see the idea of you know, when he mentions the quantum field, field and you actually see a lot of lie, abstract images on the screen, mm. That actually struck me, and and here I would compare him. Um, hopefully, he's not going to be buried under all these people we're comparing him to. But here I would compare him, maybe someone like Terry Malick doing, you well, know, yes. looking at the universe and saying, okay, how does the the universe work on a macro level and a micro level? And it, it that to me was much better than sort of you know Eddie Redmayne, you know, stirring a cup of coffee and going, oh, spirals, maybe that's like a galaxy. Yeah. Well, it's open. This film, it's interesting. The film opens with the with the raindrops, mm. and it, which is a very Malick kind mm. of shot, a kind of a very Tarkovsky type of top shot as well. Um, and that's not in the script. They added that in the edit. That's like in the script. Oh, that's interesting. In the fire, and it starts with, but it starts with water first, and the, the nature, um, and it's perfect because that then ties to the end where you've got the vision of the kind of the explosions in the atmosphere, all um, these drops. Yeah, and that's on the map. I mean, yeah, no, I think the, the, the visualization of, of abstract ideas and also the transformation of abstract ideas into an emotional response. I think it's a very, very emotional film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's really, really powerful. And that's why I think the connection to kind of interstellar is there. Um, and that's why I think it's true in the other thing in Dunkirk and Tenet. I think there's a huge amount of like there's a great that great scene in in, in Tenet where she sits down and talks to John David Washington in the restaurant and lays it out. Yeah, it's, that's fantastic, and that's kind of where his films have kind of been going. And I think you see that kind of reach fruition in them in Oppenheimer. But to go back to what we said about Malick, I think Malick is right. I mean, if you go back to Interstellar. The kind of the collapse of the natural environment or the dust clouds yes there's a bit of stalker in there as well but you know that's there's a lot of tarkovsky in, in the way malik approaches nature. yeah absolutely yeah but i think also there's a there's a tradition of filmmaking that's there with terry malik that's there in david lynch and that is in people like jack fisk the production designer right um, and his assistant was ruth de jong who designed oppenheimer and she designed with fisk there will be blood, which is the other film I think, which has got all the stuff in Los Alamos. I think reminds me of that. Yeah, Very the sense funny. of a community being built up, an yes, industry yes, yes. coming from from nowhere, and these tensions. In that, it's kind of capitalism and religion. In this, it's kind of the military and science kind of yeah. like smashing together. The military-industrial yeah. complex, you know, which yeah. is built and also on... Ruth De Jong was the production designer on Twin Peaks. Oh man, and and, and you look at 
the, the, the episode eight with the kind of the explosion. No, exactly. Yeah, episode someone put of, that in. The, the, but also, oh, his, his kind of abstract kind of image, the imagery, it was made me think of when you go into that, which Lynch did, you know, that kind of Stan Brackage. I mean, Lynch goes much more into the kind of Stan Brackage kind of experimental kind of look of all that stuff. But there's a lot of that in this. And I, mean, I think that that's, I think he's a huge influence on him. And I think in his mm. use of sound and in use of music and, um, I think, yeah, yeah, I think that there's, and I think, but I do you think there's been a big change in the films with the change in editorial? I think mm. the fact Jennifer Lyman is in, editing the films, you can feel they're different. With They're like they're like coiled springs, I think, with the Lee Smith films. I think this was one of the best edited films I've seen in a long time. I mean, it, it, it was yeah. so complicated and it was so seamless. I didn't, I wasn't for a second confused. I was totally in, into it. And hmm. to the point that I wasn't noticing, we were jumping between 20, 30 years yeah. regularly within three shots. I would add another thing about the David Lynch, uh, Jack Fisk connection with Terrence Malick as well is, you know, they're, they're all at the AFI at the same time, um, Lynch, and, Lynch and Malick are. And I would also uh, thinking about how they're visualizing um, power and and you know a, atomic processes. Um, Lynch, from the very beginning of his career, is fascinated by electricity and how electricity is something that we just take for granted and is actually this terrifying force that surrounds us and we're using it to power our lives. But you know, the crackling electricity is a very is a trope that he uses, and I think in Oppenheimer that electricity becomes a sort of uh, quantum world of of energies and forces and strong mm. nuclear force. Well, and also you go back to the Prestige. Tesla. Exactly. Yeah. Very. Very so, good. You know, and also Bowie is in is in is in Twin Peaks. <laughs> oh damn it! Are they have we ever seen Nolan and Lynch in the same room? No, no, no. He doesn't talk about him in um uh the Nolan variations. Not a lot. Everybody kind of looks at him. I mean, I always thought with 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 like Memento and stuff like that. When you looked at his version of America, yeah. it had very. It was felt that feels to me very. Lynchian. Yeah. I think there's, there's hotel Lynch... rooms and, and diners. There is an insomnia as well. There's a kind of sense of that. There's also with But they're both those are both drinking from the same noir now well. So there's a little crossover. There. Yeah, and mm. I, but I think in Inception there's a lot of there's a certain amount of it's not like it's not Lynch in some respects, but there's a Lynchian kind of idea that, that's in there. But I also think with him it's Cronenberg as well, because if you look at Memento, you can look at that and say that's very like a Cronenberg film with the tattooing and the loss of memory. Mm. The scene in Inception, isn't there, where they're all kind of sleeping, um, which is very similar to a scene in, um, what's the film? Um, Existence. Ah, in existence, yes, but but also Naked Lunch, where they're in, they, they get with the, with the mugwumps, the, where they're going into the, they come here to kind of, get the drink off the mugwumps, I think is towards yeah. the end. <laughs> and then you can look at you can look at Dead Ringers and see a kind of very strong connection with like something like the prestige with the two characters and the twins and the you know, there's a lot of that there's a lot of those kind of there's a lot of those filmmakers that are never talked about in terms of his work, which I think are really deeply embedded because Cronenberg's a very literary filmmaker in the way that he's a very literary filmmaker. Yeah. But Lynch is a very emotive filmmaker in the way that he's a really emotive filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and he's, 
I mean, people talk about him in the kind. I mean, he's kind of unusual. I mean, he's kind of unique, really, as a filmmaker in the in the world. In that, what he brings to the mainstream is kind of what no one else in the mainstream does. Because none. I mean, you can look at it and say, yeah, there's a there's a very strong James Cameron influence. There's a very strong um, influence of Ridley Scott and all the rest of it. But his films aren't really like their films. No, no, not at all, not at all. And, <laughs> I, and I think in the the depth of complexity, I mean, I I enjoy James Cameron, but I wouldn't look at Avatar and think I'm going to go there to think. You know, I mean, it's got stuff going on, but I wouldn't. It's got to me. It's Harry Harrison. It's not Philip K. Dick. No, no, no. That's right. With David Cronenberg, is that that's that's where you go to David Cronenberg for for that. Mm. And, and to be honest, you get a much better kind of adaptation of Philip K. Dick from David Cronenberg than you would from Ridley Scott. Right, right. Because Ridley Scott would ad- adapt the world. He doesn't really get the Philip K. Dick. No, no. Philip oh, K. Cool. Dick is too sixties and and too sort yeah. of countercultural. And, and uh, whereas I, a film like Videodrome or a film like Existence is is Philip K. Dick. Yeah, yeah. It's not absolutely. a Philip K. Dick story, but it's absolutely drawn from it. Like there's more in a weird way. There's more of Philip K. Dick in something like Total Recall than there is in Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely the taxi driver is is a classic Dick character. Um, one thing I want to say before we finish up with Oppenheimer, which is uh, one other criticism we've already talked about the the uh, you know the sexism that that uh, has been perceived, which I would I would push back strenuously. Um, I'd also argue that there's this argument that we don't see the result of the atomic bombs. We don't see the Japanese uh, cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm. I would add, you don't see any of the Second World War. You don't, I mean, again, for me, a lesser film would have him sitting in a room, watching, sitting in a cinema, watching, you know, um, German troops walk into Warsaw and going, oh, or seeing some sort of the Jews being, uh, you know, um, harassed on the street after Crystal Nacht and sort of saying, okay, we're going to have to do something about these guys. You know what I mean? It, it, that the whole thing, even when they're talking about the Nazis, we need to get this before the Nazis. It's almost r- ranked as a scientific competition with his, you know, the flashback you get is to him meeting Heidelberg. It's not to him, um, you know, not to him experiencing anti-Semitism. That's spoken about, but it's not, you don't see that. It's not part of his lived experience. Um, yeah. you, he hears about it from another ga- character. Um, and he even sort of, when he meets that character, sort of said, you know, it's kind of like, well, I don't really think about my Jewishness much. You know, I'm not, I'm not, that's not part of my identity to to a great extent. Um, and so you have this, this, um, so so this criticism that he that somehow the film betrays the people of Japan because it doesn't i think it's just utterly misguided because that choice of not seeing that is because you get all the results of that much more powerfully by not seeing some sort of terminator 2 shot of nagasaki being blown up you know i think you 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 get it you get the excitement of them putting the team together and getting the bomb together and the excitement of the test. And right at that moment where you, you there's, they're all triumphing, you feel uneasy and queasy and the film feels queasy, you know, take the sheet mm. in. And, and, the, and, and from then on, you're, you are 
constantly re- feeling that this is this is screwed up. And you, somebody said uh, in a review that they wrote that was very negative, said, oh, it's not made clear that Germany is already out of the war. It's mentioned like four times in the course of the film prior to the bomb being tested, uh, by, uh, being dropped on um, uh, Hiroshima. Germany has surrendered, Germany has surrendered, Germany has surrendered, um, maybe three times. But it's 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 there in the movie. There's no sense that. What, what's your take on it? Well, I, well, I think also there's a sh- there's a shift, isn't it? There? There's that scene where where Oppenheimer comes in to the to the room where they're having their meeting, and they've and they say that Germany are out of the war. Why are we still doing the bomb at this point? He says we can't let the Russians have. Doesn't he say we can't let the Russians have it? It's yeah, like a, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and, it's and I mean like, that. By the way, that isn't necessarily. You know, um, ooh, conspiratorial Americans, terrible Americans. I mean, Stalin was working on the bomb, and if Stalin got the bomb, you know, you know, I mean, which there was a. Let's put it this way: the 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 stakes of this film are not a Twitter post. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, people have to kind of like and polit and you know, and politics is about more than just and the film is about power in every single sense. Yeah. Who has power, who leverages power. The best, the scene that sums that up better than everything else is the bit after they've detonated the bomb and then Grove said, and he says, when I come to Washington, he said, why would you do that? Yeah. Why would you, it's like you're, you're useful, you're, you're, you, and, and um, um, his mate earlier on says to him, they won't, what about when they, or when they're interviewing the scientists, he says, well, what about when they don't need you anymore? And there's, and that's a great thing. It's about power. It's about power in every sense. He's unleashing power, but the power you unleash is not the power that you're necessarily going to use. Who is going to use it? I mean, the scene with the scene with fucking um, uh, Gary Oldman mm. is kind of amazing, unbelievably good. And that thing of like saying as the as the door is closing, I don't want to see that guy. Well, one again. criticism of the film though is that that he looks more like Alan Mullery than he does um, than, uh, <laughs> than uh, uh, Harry Truman. <laughs> Gary, he does love his makeup, doesn't he? Bless. It's a great scene, it's, and it's phenomenal. And it's like, that's the first, one time he comes into real direct conflict with power or confrontation with power, and he's reduced to a child. Yeah. He's treated as a child. He's emasculated. And was it, get that crybaby out of here? Yeah. yeah. I, dro- I dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, it's like, and that is... You know, and Truman is a great in in many ways is a great president. If we look at it, kind of on the in the in the broader scheme of things, you know, Truman did that thing. Um, I mean, and there is a, there's a debate about the, about the dropping of the bomb in on in Japan. Is that would the Japanese have surrendered? You know, that the the, the the if they hadn't dropped the bomb, that you're talking about hundreds of thousands of lives that would have been lost in trying to take Japan. Now, no, you can, no, I, 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 you can argue, argue the toss with that. I mean. That well, argument has that is, largely been settled, I think. I think it's I think I think it's a complicated debate. I think not, it, it, the point is it's not reducible to just saying you don't see the Japanese, but it's like you can but would you ever adequately express the horror on a on a, on a film on a movie screen? I mean Hiroshima Monomore maybe does that with Renee using real footage from that 
from Japan at that time? Well, I mean, the thing is, the, the film has the opportunity to do that. I mean, the one thing I'd say historically, I think it's been fairly settled that the Japanese were in were in negotiations for a total surrender and the Americans were actually pushing it off because they wanted to use the bomb to show Stalin that they had it. Um, the, the, the second... Uh, the second thing, though, is when you have that scene where they're what looking at the consequences, they're going through it like as a almost like a you know debrief, and this is what was happening to people who were this far away from the explosion, and this was what, and and that that's the point. You, Nolan could easily show that those pictures, and we would go, oh my god, but we just focus on his reaction. It's just what it's doing to him, and I think that's a really conscious decision i'm not saying that necessarily makes it a good thing but it's not that he's just forgotten about the japanese he knows that he's got an opportunity here where he can show the images of the japanese uh uh the devastation that a bomb wrought and and do it within the rules that he has provided for the sort of subjectivity of his camera he doesn't do it, I think, because he's he's trying to get it to an even bigger point, which is not only the suffering that this caused the Japanese, but how this is in, is to this present day endangering the entire world. Well, and it po- well it poisons the world, and it poisons yeah. the United States. I think that's the kind of scene with 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 um, Truman, isn't it? You know, this is like who are the good guys here, who are the who are the bad guys here. But also that is that once the genie's out the bottle, you can't put it back in. Um, and this is true of all forms of of, of, of technological advancement. Um, and you know the thing with, with 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 Oppenheimer as well. It's also about ambition. I think this is the thing that's interesting with the the the, the comparison with Dunkirk is what you have in Dunkirk is there's no central character. It's mm. a collective effort to kind of survive the war so the war there from seen from a sort of british point of view is it's a collective endeavor you know mm. that's why you know it's interesting listen you know talking about the sort of like the tories after the war one of the reasons why a lot of the tories the wets in thatcher's cabinet um couldn't really be aggressive against the working class in britain is because they'd served with them in the war Right, right. All of the Thatcherite kind of stuff happens after there is a massive sea change in the kind of the the nature of the Conservative Party. People who didn't follow the Willie Whitelaws of this war world, who were like tank commanders, and those guys had been their friends and had died alongside them. Um, When they're kind of out the way, (laughs) then the kind of you get this kind of much more aggressive kind of class war. So that's a very embedded kind of like notion of the war in uk i think it's interesting in oppenheimer that it's about an individual that's a very that's a very american view yeah i dropped the bomb on nagasaki it's the kind of the, the focus on the individual the focus on the great man kind of idea and in, ways, and in many ways what the film is really clever at doing is undercutting that yes yes exactly yes it's, it's kind of really kind of very, it's sort of it's totally not the opposite of like American triumphalism. It's the it's it's totally the opposite of that. Um, and it's like what um, it's what you know. What Einstein says to him at the end, you know, whatever in that little scene, you know, they gave you your, they gave me my little kind of award, and they're really it's there for them, not for you. And it's kind of yeah, yeah. And that's heartbreaking. The scene at the end when it's there, and then you see her not shake Teller's hand because of you know that's fantastic. It's 
But the point of Oppenheimer is he's a great man, but also a terrible man, and he's a strong man, and he's a weak man. He's all yeah. of these. He's a man. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, he's yeah. He's, he's incredibly he's rational, and he's also insane. I mean, there's a, there's processes in this, and he always was. I mean, the thing with the apple, you don't poison your professor's mm -hmm. apple just because he, he screwed with you in the laboratory. That's a ridiculous act. To and a do. man of rationality and a man of passion and a man, yeah. a man of appetites and a man and all those kinds of things. And that's the thing about the film. It's not this reduction. I mean, I, I, he just uh, that's a, just a, pa a casual thing where he admits to sort of screwing his one of his best friend's wives, and it's just like, oh yeah, of course, which is sort of subtly hinted at in the film, but never kind of co confirmed until that point, and it's a throwaway thing. But it's the there's the whole thing in it as well, though, isn't there? Of um, uh, I think this this thing of the of the kind of American exceptionalism, mm, I mm. think it's it's it's. Totally. I mean, I don't. I mean, one of the things I don't like about Saving Private Ryan, and I don't like about Schindler's List, is that you reduce these horrors to a sort of like a, a melodrama. And I think it's famously that it's that thing that Kubrick said about the, the um, Schindler's List, isn't it? That only Stephen could turn a, the greatest failure in human history into a into a success story. Yeah, a feel a feel good movie, you know. It's uh, like. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, Holocaust not in the kind of the quality of the filmmaking or the or the or any of that or the acting, but I have a pro I do have a problem with that. I, yeah. I always have that. Um, and I don't think Spielberg, as a filmmaker, really has ever stood up. He can do that. I, I don't think he delivers on the promise of those kind of films. I don't. I don't think I think I find those films far less human and engaging and interesting. Than he's more kind of you know sort of like a or, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Or, or or I mean to be honest I find I find sort of Belloc kind of a a, a much more kind of understandable nastier kind of villain than say um, Goeth in sort of Schindler's List. Mm, mm. I find you know that's just sort of you know yeah he's. It, not that Ray Fiennes is not a great actor and that's not a really good performance, but I just, I don't know. There's an element with all those films. It's just, un, you don't buy it. Mm. You just don't buy it. Mm. I think that's the problem I have with, uh, with, with that. Um, yeah. And the yeah. same is true of Amistad as well, I think is, uh, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're kind of, really, and, and the same with Lincoln as well. It's like, it's, um, that's a very kind of stolid, staid, kind of uninteresting film in lots of ways i think it's a really superior tv movie with two amazing performances at its heart you know it's Absolutely. tommy lee jones and daniel day lewis sitting together and acting it out and and it's just gorgeous but yeah i mean Going back to so for, for when you said I thought that was absolutely right what you say this Ayn Rand idea of the individual this powerful man who's going to dictate history and Atlas shrugged and all the rest of it and yet at the end I loved the line with Robert Downey Jr. where he's he, he's obsessing over Einstein not saying anything to him and the, the sort of the cabinet aide the government civil service guy just says maybe they had more important things to think about exactly. And, and I just thought that summed up the film. You, this whole human melodrama that Spielberg would have put, would have given a line that justified that. And then you go back and, and uh, you know, obviously we're spoiling everything here. Um, the line that I loved and which devastated me was, you remember when I asked about, you know, as destroying the world, well, 
we did. You know, I think we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that isn't about that's that's to me is is about the nuclear uh, threat. It's about the present day situation with climate crisis. And Ooh, and it it, it 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 just struck me as almost like Jesus Christ. Could this be? If you shot this film out on a some sort of solar satellite that would just go out into the world, and aliens would pick it up from millennia, this would be the film that would say, "This is why they're all dead. This is why they died out. This mm. is the this is the justification. This is the the a requiem for the human race." Yeah, well, I think the the. Um... You're right. I mean, I think I think the, the the shadow of it as well is what goes. I think what's interesting in that, but it's it's maybe they were talking about things that were more interesting, but also that it's Kennedy who is the vote the the, the junior the, the junior senator from Massachusetts who, you know, screws Strauss over, and at the same and then but Kennedy will be defined by the nuclear issue. Yeah, the Cuban missile crisis. Yep, it will be, and it, and that will kind of like. And the war on communism, all these things kind of like it doesn't end. These things continue. These things kind of continue to metastasize within the American body politic um, as time goes on. I uh, kind of think I like. I really like Strauss in the film. I think there's a thing there as well about. I think there's an interesting thing there about two types of Jew as well in America. Yes, You've yeah, got the assimilated one, and, and Strauss can't hide the fact he's a Jew. Now they have that conversation about you know that he's at the temple, isn't it? He goes to such and such temple in yeah. town when he's trying to get when he's trying to kind of flatter Oppenheimer to get him to come to the institute, and Oppenheimer treats him like an absolute piece of shit. You know, he's mm. like um, so you can kind of understand Strauss's sort of antipathy towards Oppenheimer, and when he's in charge of the Atomic Energy Commission, you can see the point about they're talking about with the Russians, they're talking about, you know, the, he ran a leaky ship and the Russians got this information. So Strauss is not a villain in the same no, way. No, 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 not at all. He's I an mean, interesting character as well because of his, because of his, as a politician, but also that those two kind of faces of, 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 of science and politics, you know, we talk about, you know, science and military, but science and politics, he's a military man as well before, wasn't he Strauss? I think he, that's what he, that's the, his background. So you've got that going on. Um, but I also th- simulation, I think, are really important as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I think also um, that last li- that last line of you know maybe they were talking about something more important also serves as a kind of um, an explanation for the Jason Clark interrogation scenes which run throughout that you know it, what's what this guy has done. He's mm. so guilty. This you know little procedure in a small room doesn't that, that's not important either i mean it's played out as one of the main you know are they gonna oh wow they're gonna triumph on or not but also as well, it's it's like, other, but it's also the other thing she says why don't you fight back and it's because he thinks he deserves it exactly yeah it's he wants punishment and uh the oh. punishment isn't being given to the extent that he wishes he'd rather this be televised and be humiliated all over the world and you know, it's not going to happen. And I love Jason Clark in this. I think he does oh, a really good job. And that that thing of bringing out that moral failing, you know, you didn't, you you know, you don't deserve, you, you know, you're, the justifications you have are wrong, you know. And I think I think uh, Matt Damon's great as Groves as well. I think there's a great their relationship at the center of the film is great. But I think when he comes and speaks at the at the hearing is is really 
that's a very that's a very very moving scene mm. without mm. being overdone and i just think killian murphy's performance is phenomenal because it's so much of it is reaction yeah certainly in that stuff where he's kind of you've got the main character who's kind of you know essentially not doing very much in that final bit everybody's basically raining <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But the way he plays it is kind of like phenomenal. It's phenomenal old age makeup as well. Yeah, it's like yeah. sometimes you see that in films and it's just crap. Yeah, yeah. But he looks really wizened, and you know the cancer's yeah, going to get him very soon. The way it's done, I mean, it's just yeah, yeah it's just. Um, Who would have thought he would have died of cancer after all those cigarettes? <laughs> didn't he? He did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. He's, uh, he died. 16, when his daughter killed himself, killed herself, didn't she as well? Yeah, so the, yeah. the tragedy of it kind of like lingers through, absolutely um, through throughout. But I think also the other thing that I find interesting as well, and particularly with, with this, is the, and I think this is true. You've mentioned this. I know you're doing your book on 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 um, Malik. You mentioned it before about the, the, him being viewed as a very as Christian. Mm, mm. I think with with Nolan, that's very strong, and I think in this, it's very strong. Even going from the apple, <laughs> you know, you could argue the apple and set this apple, the apple and the serpent. They talk about this, this don't raise mm. the rock when it comes out. That idea of guilt and sin, and deliberately biting the fruit, you know, the, to, to take that, you know, knowledge, is interesting. The way it's played, that it's it's yeah. You, knowledge kind of takes you it's the human story it's the way that that kind of um the, those things are kind of framed what mm. is correct are you you know that that classic idea in, in movies isn't it you're tampering with the laws of nature you know i'd love to see him make a horror film that's what i'd love to see him do wow or and a musical let's let him I, I'd, I'd love him go through all the genres because i think he's already done i mean i think that's what he did with batman he he basically did a bit of a horror movie with Batman Begins. He did a bit of a, a Michael Mann crime thriller. Um, and then I don't know what he did with Dark Knight Rises. What was that? It's kind of opera. Hmm? Yeah. I, think that, I think that's his most underrated film. It's a disaster movie. Yeah, that's a good That's a good call. I'll, I'll go with that. That's his, I think that's his most underrated film. Oh, I, that's I'm my gonna... favourite Batman film, actually, of the three. Wow, wow. Well, I, oh. I'm much maligned, but I definitely loved it. I was definitely... Uh, Listen, James, that's absolutely brilliant conversation. I really enjoyed talking those things over with you. You've opened my mind to loads of new um, points of comparison and points of, of connection. Um, I've, I can't wait to go and watch it again on Monday. Brilliant. Will you watch it in... Are you you're going to only see it in Italian? Or are you no, I, I'll be, hopefully it'll be in English on Monday. And so uh, I'm going to take my daughter to see it, who's a big, huge fan of uh, cinema. And uh, I think we're going to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, James. Uh thanks so much, man. Pleasure. And we've got to talk, uh we've got to talk James Gunn and and Alan Moore. I think we've got to do an Alan Moore. I think we were gonna do that, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's still on the docket. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Will you let me know and I'll we'll, we'll fit it in. Brilliant. Take care, man. You too. Thanks, John.